So Kerry Phipps here with Andrew Greystone all the way from the UK and friends from right around the world, Singapore, Philippines, India, UK, obviously, and right across Australia, anywhere else. Uh, and we are here to discuss faith, hope and mischief, which um, is just awesome. Tiny acts of rebellion. And I met Andrew last year as many of you know about the hashtag do talk to strangers europe tour when i didn't know what i was doing but i was just going to meet people and ian and liz were over at our house one night in dubbo and ian said oh you need to meet this friend of mine and he held up this photo on the internet and i said oh my gosh i remember this and i'm like i could meet him that's so cool so i got to dublin about a week or just before going to England and I sent Andrew a message and said, hi, Ian said that, you know, we should connect. And Andrew messaged back quickly and said, um, a friend of Ian's needs all the help they can get, which I didn't see as his sense of humor at the time. I just went, oh, bless. He's just going to welcome me because I'm a friend of Ian's. And then I realized that <laughs> he was having a little joke at Ian. Uh, so we had a little chat and then Andrew just said, come to my wife's birthday party next weekend. And I said, well, does your wife mind having a stranger come to her birthday party? Now, Andrew is going to share a story a little later and you will see why his wife didn't mind at all that I came to her birthday party. And Ian and Liz were actually walking right across England, right down the length until they hit bad weather. And so they were there in Manchester at Jane's birthday party too, which was so, so special. Well, thank you so much, Kerry. It's so lovely to be able to meet you. Um, it's one of the real, one of the few maybe real benefits of this strange time in the world that we're, we're able and managing to meet each other uh, across the world like this. I'm going to read you just a few stories uh, in the next little while from the book that Kerry mentioned. It's called Faith, Hope and Mischief. And uh, it's just a, group, a collection of stories and some reflections on them. Uh, the thing they all have in common is that all the stories are true and they all happen to me. Uh, apart from that, they're all very different. Some are very short, some are a little bit longer. And I'm going to start by reading the story that goes with the picture that's on the front of the book. And I call this You Are My Friends. I usually wake up to the Today programme on BBC Radio 4. On the morning of the 15th of March last year, I woke up to the news of the terrible events in Christchurch, New Zealand. A young man had walked into two mosques during Friday prayers. He was carrying five guns. He carefully decorated each one in tipex with slogans and symbols representing white supremacy. He shot 51 people dead and wounded 49 others. Then he got in his car and set off for a third location. He was arrested before he got there. Christchurch is known as a fairly tranquil city in a relatively peaceful country. It's about 12,000 miles from Manchester where I am. I've never been there and I don't suppose I ever will. But my first thought when I heard the bulletin was that if this could happen in Christchurch, it could happen anywhere. I wondered how the people who gather for Friday prayers at my local mosque in Levensume might feel this morning. Angry? Mistrustful? Afraid? I couldn't stop thinking about them all morning. At about half past eleven, people would be leaving work and heading towards the mosque for Friday prayers. I thought I would walk there too. I wasn't quite sure why, I just felt I wanted to be with them. But as I was leaving the house, I, th I thought I wondered what on earth I would do when I got there. I thought I might look a bit silly just standing in the road and grinning. So I grabbed a piece of cardboard, an old file hanger actually, and wrote a message on it. You are my friends. I will watch while you pray. I read it back to myself. The idea of watching while someone else prayed sound a bit creepy. So I stuck a piece of paper over it and tried again. You are my friends. I will keep watch while you pray. That was better. Then I set off. When I got to the mosque, people were starting to arrive. 
I stood outside with my sign. It's a big mosque with several hundred worshippers. I was struck by how much of a rush people were in as they arrived, just like my own church, I thought, with people hurrying in during the first hymn. Some looked a bit wary when they saw me standing by the entrance. Perhaps they wondered if I was some kind of protester or an evangelist hoping to convert them. When they saw the card, some of them smiled, but most of them just walked straight past me. I stayed at the gate for about an hour and a half until people started to leave. When the worshippers came out, everyone wanted to shake my hand, thank me and share salam with me. Someone even took a photo of me with my cardboard sign. It turned out that the imam had seen me as he walked into the mosque and had mentioned me in his sermon. For a day that had started with such bleak news, it was a lovely atmosphere. A man outside the mosque was cooking chicken biryani and he gave me a tin box full of it, so that felt like a win. Then I toddled off home to get on with my day. The man who took the photo uploaded it to our community website with a message saying, who is this guy? As the day went on, I discovered that the picture was being shared widely on the internet, not just on our local Facebook page. Not only in the UK either, but around the world. I started to get messages by email and Twitter from strangers. At first, I replied to each message as it came in, then they started coming faster and faster. By the end of the afternoon, I couldn't even keep up with reading them. Beside the personal messages, there were likes and retweets and Facebook posts, literally millions of them, all sharing the picture, the one you can see behind me. By tea time, I was starting to realise that I'd gone, if not viral, then at least fungal. I didn't post anything on social media myself, though my daughter posted a nice message saying she was proud of me. But in the next few hours, my picture was retweeted with warm messages from the weirdest range of people, from Jada Pinkett Smith through to Monica Lewinsky. And the snowball kept rolling down the hill faster and faster. Within a few hours, I was getting messages from journalists and radio and TV stations in every country you can imagine, from Turkey and Egypt and Bangladesh. Who was I? Why had I done this? Would I be prepared to give them an interview? I had to decide quickly how I was going to respond. I thought the best thing was to roll with it. So I made a decision that I would say yes to everyone except Piers Morgan, and that's what I did. On Saturday, I did interviews back to back by phone, by Skype, in TV studios. When Saturday evening came, I breathed a sigh of relief thinking it was all over. But then Australia and New Zealand woke up and started getting in touch. The attacks were in New Zealand and the attacker had come from Australia. And perhaps the greatest privilege of all was to speak to the people of Christchurch, New Zealand via their local TV and radio stations. I was able to say that we in Manchester know something of what they're feeling because we've had our own share of atrocities but that we also know that friendship can overcome fear. On Monday, I had a message of thanks from the Prime Minister of New Zealand, the wonderful Jacinda Ardern. The Secretary General of the United Nations mentioned me in a speech about reconciliation, and so did a minister from the UK Foreign Office. Over the next few days, I received in excess of 50,000 individual messages. They came from almost every country in the world, from Hollywood to Hyderabad. The photo was copied tens of millions of times. In 24 hours, my Twitter followers went up from 3,000 to over 15,000. Now, usually I regret about one in three of my tweets, but I realized I'd need to start being more careful what I said. I became the subject of sermons and school assemblies and radio phone-ins. The responses were overwhelmingly positive, although of course there were a few unpleasant ones. I was raised in the Scottish Parliament as an example of the need for social media platforms to censor abusive messages, 
though to this day I haven't been able to find the abusive messages they were referring to. One or two people asked what exactly I was planning to do if a gunman had approached the mosque. To be honest, I hadn't really thought about that. Armed with a file hanger and a flat hat, I made a pretty inadequate vigilante. But the point was to be there, and everybody visiting the mosque seemed to understand that. Amongst the negative messages, one common complaint was, are you going to stand guard outside every mosque in the world then? To which my answer was, no, I'll stand outside my local mosque, and maybe you could stand outside yours. Indeed, people from other cities around the world started to do just that. I was sent pictures of people standing outside mosques in their own cities, some of them with signs saying, you are my friends, I will keep watch while you pray. One lovely couple in the UK had even written their sign on an old file hanger, as if that was a key part of the idea. Another common message in the negative pile was, well, you wouldn't find Muslims protecting churches if it was the other way round. But, in fact, the following month, when a church in Sri Lanka was attacked by a Muslim gunman, groups from mosques all around the world did just that, standing outside their local churches in solidarity. My family will confirm that I was bemused by the whole experience. The whole thing was unplanned, unexpected and completely disproportionate. The simple message I had tried to pass on is that friendship overcomes fear. Hatred doesn't generate itself, it's a byproduct of fear. Fear of someone who is just slightly different from me. Some of the stuff that happened was a bit bizarre. A woman from Essex knitted a puppet of me holding my sign. An artist in Dorset painted me in oils. A man in New Zealand drew a cartoon picture of me on the side of a paper cup and sent it to me. I got some lovely offers too. The picture was particularly big in Turkey apparently and a generous guy offered to ship me over there so he could buy me a drink. A Muslim dentist in the Midlands wrote to say that in gratitude for my actions he would like to offer to whiten my teeth for free which is a pretty backhanded compliment, really. I'm still reflecting on what has happened and is continuing to happen. I wasn't expecting to be interviewed on Voice of Islam radio or badmouthed by far-right groups or discussed on Loose Women. I'm aware that all the nice things that were said to me and about me and all the not-so-nice things were not actually being addressed to me personally but to the action and what it represented. One of the themes to emerge from the tens of thousands of messages I've received is that Muslims in the UK and elsewhere live with a mild but perpetual undercurrent of threat. It's like a buzzing in the ears, varying in intensity according to context, but requiring constant vigilance. Of course, others also live with similar kinds of anxiety. Perhaps we all do, though as a middle-class white man in the UK, my threat level is almost inaudible. For others, it's like the relentless hum of tinnitus. Unwittingly, my tiny action and the message on my card seem to have suggested to people that I understood the impact of this level of persistent fear. The word Islamophobia suggests a fear of Muslims, but the effect is to generate a fear in Muslims, and both sides of this unholy equation need to be dealt with. What people seemed to respond to was an image of an ordinary looking bloke wearing a flat cap and a jumper, doing something a bit transgressive. I'd jumped over the fence and gone into a neighbour's territory. That's exactly what the Christchurch gunman had done, except that where he went with guns and hatred, I went open-handed and smiling. Some people thanked me for taking a risk. What risk? A small risk of rejection, perhaps? The possibility of being misunderstood? But you can't start a friendship of any kind 
without taking small risks. If I had had any idea when I woke up that morning that my picture was going to be shared around the world, I would at least have brushed my hair. It's nice when someone sends you a message saying, you are a symbol of the world I want to live in. It's nice when someone shouts hero at you in the street or stops you in the supermarket and asks for a selfie. Nice, nice, but also weird nice. I'm just trying to roll with it. Tomorrow, it'll all be forgotten. Probably. And that's the end of my first story. Well, thank you so much. That's beautiful. Thank you, Andrew. I just love that, you know, small risk of rejection. And that's what we, that's what we take so often, just to step out of our comfort zone. Uh, does anyone, yeah, I love that. Just all around loveliness from Simon, a beautiful story from Kaylee. Does anyone have a question or are you like going, tell us another story? What a great storyteller you are, Andrew. Oh. I mean, you've shared the story so beautifully in the book. It's so readable. I actually had this at dinner the other night and my brother started reading it and he was in tears laughing. It was just uh, beautiful. <laughs> so any pressing questions or... Oh, Simon said, was this story the catalyst for the book? Yeah, I guess it was. I guess it was. Because... Um, I did a lot of reflecting on that after it happened last year. And I thought, what a strange thing to happen kind of out of the blue like that. And then I thought, actually, quite a lot of strange things have happened to me out of the blue. Um, I wonder if there's a pattern. And this was my way of trying to work out what the pattern was. Yeah, yeah. And there's just beautiful themes through here. Um, so I'm going to get you to jump into the next story, Andrew. Uh, please feel free to add questions to the chat anytime. But uh, go for it, Andrew. Okay, this is a story. Well, it's a little collection of stories, really, called I Wonder. A group of scientists recently announced that they discovered a new shade of the colour black. Apparently, it's 25 times blacker than the blackest black anyone's ever made before. I suppose you can't exactly say they've discovered a new shade of black. Presumably, it was there before they managed to measure it or recreate it. But it's kind of exciting because it means the whole spectrum of colours has grown a bit. In a way, it's a bit like discovering a whole new continent that we didn't know was there. I was delighted that the scientist who developed this new black was called Dr Richard Brown. He was very excited about it. It's incredibly beautiful, he said, like black velvet. The only trouble is you need scientific instruments to tell you just how black it is. To me and you, black is just, well, black. But there's obviously much more to black than meets the eye. All my life I've been blissfully unaware of how much detail and richness there is, even in the simple colour black. I guess quite often I just look at the surface of things. I'm rather ashamed to have missed so much of the intensity of the world. Evidently, there's a whole range of detail that I'm just not equipped to pick up. It makes me wonder what else I've been missing. Is there a mass of sounds that my ears just aren't hearing? Are there a million different flavours that my taste buds have been ignoring? The mind boggles. If you believe in God, then this extravagance will make you stand back in awe. God's attention to detail. Amazing. Fancy creating stuff that's far cleverer than we're even equipped to experience. And if you don't believe in God, well, maybe the world's just a more wonderful place than we'd realised till now. A little while ago, I spent a week on a camping holiday with a gathering of families from housing estates all over the UK. All of us came from difficult areas and most of us had very real experience of poverty. We were all pretty stressed out when we arrived. In a far corner of the campsite, there was a huge, yellow, bouncy castle. The biggest I'd ever seen. The children were wide-eyed when they first saw it. And they played on it for hour after hour, day after day. It's just amazing how long they can keep going on those things. After a few days, it was obvious that one or two of the adults were eyeing up the castle too. 
It looks such fun. So one night, after dark, when we felt sure the kids were asleep, we drove a couple of cars down the field and shone their headlights onto the bouncy castle. Then, under the stars, the grown-ups took their shoes off and jumped on the castle. We bounced and giggled and pushed each other over until late into the night and we were all out of breath and couldn't stand up for laughing. It was fantastic. It was like we discovered something innocent in ourselves that adulthood had almost completely obscured. I'm sure the adults on the bouncy castle behave worse than the children, but that was because it had been so long since many of us had connected with that part of ourselves that sparkled and wondered. The amazing thing was that even for those whose everyday lives were grindingly tough, the sense of joy was still available. You just had to mine for it and not give up until you'd found it. A little while later, some friends and I decided to climb Mount Snowdon in Wales. It was a lovely sunny day, and as we climbed the pig track, we were getting spectacular views across the landscape below. At one point, we walked past a big glacial lake. At the side of the lake was another party of walkers. They were all standing in the shallows at the water's edge, gazing intently downwards. We stopped and asked them what they were doing. They told us that they had been skimming stones across the surface of the lake when one of the women had accidentally skimmed her wedding ring straight off her finger and into the water. They'd all been standing there for an hour or more looking for it. We joined them in the hunt. The water was crystal clear and the bottom of the lake was covered in smooth, round, golden pebbles. The bright sunshine was playing cruel tricks on them, making little gold circles dance all over the surface of the water. Every so often one of us would bend down into the lake and make a grab for what we thought was the ring, but it wasn't. They were all ready to give up, all except for the woman whose ring it was. For her, it was priceless, irreplaceable. She'd have stayed all day and turned over every pebble in the lake to find it. Anyway, there we were on that mountain in Wales, when suddenly one of my friends, standing on a rock in the shallows, shot his hand down in the water and held the ring up high. A cheer went up that must have been heard all over Wales. We'd only met a few minutes before, but now we were hugging each other and dancing together in the freezing water. A party broke out. The other walkers making their way up the hillside must have thought we'd gone bananas. I guess there are some things that children have access to that grown-ups usually don't. A lack of inhibitions. The energy to bounce till you're out of breath. A sense of wonder, perhaps, instead of the cynicism of adulthood a powerful combination of natural justice together with the faith that things can be different and an ability to play too. I need to recover that on a regular basis or else paying the mortgage and catching the train to work and all those other grown-up things knock all the bounce out of me. So sometimes I wait till no one's looking then run down the road as fast as I can till I'm out of breath and can't run any longer. Sometimes I lock myself in the car and drive down the motorway with the radio on disgracefully loud and sing along at the top of my voice. Occasionally, I buy a big bar of chocolate and eat it all myself, celebrating the wonder of creation. I like to do at least one thing each day that reconnects me with full-on, hair-down, childish joy. I find it's just as effective as ten minutes praying or a couple of hours worrying any day. Adult life is a bruising thing, but this life is intended for joy. Beautiful. Thank That's you, Andrew. That is so beautiful. I can see uh, Simon nodding furiously there. I can see him in the car singing loudly also. <laughs> I apologise for the uh, UK references. I hope 
I hope you make your way through and understand roughly what what they refer to. Yeah, I think so. We can always we can always ask questions and be curious. Sure, you uh, can. Yeah. Would anyone like to type or come off mute and ask a question of Andrew? We can take a couple of minutes and then um, I think it's the next story that that I really connected with because I've been in the house <laughs> with this, with uh, such a beautiful family environment. So there's comments there. Great storytelling from Rajiv. You're only young once, but you can be immature forever. Thank you, Lyndon. That um, is on a coffee mug that I gave him for his 21st birthday. <laughs> Orlando, I see you coming off mute. Would you like to share something or ask a question? And now I just wanted to just uh, congratulate Andrew. Andrew, that's terrific uh, storytelling. But more than that, it's incredible insight. And so often we get blinded by adulthood and... Uh, in the last few minutes, you've given me a good reminder of, um, of reality. So thank you. So Orlando, have you got a plan for something childish to do today? Well, it's almost the end of today uh, over here in Perth, uh, but um, certainly on the weekend, yes. I'm going to think of something audacious and, uh, and, and, and do something crazy. Or, That's or a do great idea. Or, or do something beyond my comfort zone. I mean, it's good for the health, too, because one of the key symptoms of coronavirus is that you lose your sense of taste and smell. So a bar of chocolate and a glass of wine is a great way of proving that you haven't got coronavirus. I look forward to uh, perhaps seeing a post about whatever mischief you get up to on the weekend. <laughs> That's beautiful. Orlando, I know he gets up to the kind of mischief that is generosity and... Uh encouraging people so we'll see what comes next um so thank you and simon said do you think your religion slash religious beliefs have helped you have helped encourage this play attitude yes and no um religion can make people terribly serious can make people take ourselves way too seriously or it can go the other way and it can uh, make us realize that in all the grottiness of the world there is goodness so it can go either way i think yeah great question and uh, yeah great response thanks andrew and robin said do you actively look for these situations slash opportunities or do they find you i don't actively look for things but I do actively try to notice things happening around me. I mean, I think that if, if I'm quite sure that if we all got together, the group of people who are here now, there would be enough stories between us to fill a book of the things that, uh, uh, the, the, the opportunities for faith and hope and mischief between us. But quite a lot of the time we don't notice them because they pass us by so it's not about looking for opportunities for me so much as noticing things that are happening yeah beautiful just having that awareness and simon said i ask because i'm jewish and i think that i think certain aspects of it and my experience has helped me have that attitude yeah, yeah that's cool that's awesome yeah. and uh simon's actually going to be on my podcast soon because he is a contributor to my latest book which Anu or Anu Palmer is also a contributor and she has just said, why faith, hope and mischief? Okay, Anu, can I, that's a great question. Can I pause it? Because in a moment, I'm going to read you the bit at the end of the book that I think explains that for us. Beautiful. Would you want to jump into your next story? Go for it. This is a story that I call A Moving Tale. A friend of mine was leaving her house with her three-year-old son to go to toddler group. They came out of the house into the little porch and the snack on the front door locked behind them. Then she reached for the outer door in front of them and realised that that was locked too and her keys were inside the house. They were trapped, mum and toddler, imprisoned in their own tiny front porch. What a nightmare! And with a little boy, I mean, there's only so many times you can sing the wheels on the bus go round and round. After three hours, 
she had completely run out of ways of entertaining the toddler. Then the little boy had a brilliant idea. He looked around the six-foot square porch and said, I know, Mum. Let's play hide-and-seek. They were in there for five hours before they were rescued by a passerby who called a locksmith to let them out. Ever since then, I've checked very carefully that I've got my keys in my pocket before I leave the house. It's a powerful thing to have a set of keys. I've got my key car keys in my pocket and I've got my house keys and I've also got the keys to the building where I sometimes work. And as long as I've got the keys, I've got authority to go in and out of those places whenever I choose. I'd been married about six months when Dave came into my life. To be honest, I hardly knew anything about him. I just knew that he was a big guy, I mean really big, a biker with a mass of curly black hair and tattoos running down his muscly arms and peeping out from the neck of his shirt. Plus, I knew he was homeless. Well, strictly speaking, he wasn't homeless. He was living in a nearby hostel known as The Spike. It was a series of corrugated iron huts, each containing 12 iron beds, 12 chairs, and 12 men whose lives had gone catastrophically off course. The spike was cold, miserable, and dangerous. I was going off to stay with my mum and dad over Christmas, and it just didn't seem right to leave my house empty when Dave was going to be sleeping in the spike. So I gave him a set of keys to my house, left a phone number, and told him I'd be back in the new year. Halfway down the motorway, I began to wonder if I'd been a bit naive, but by that stage, there wasn't much I could do about it. Over Christmas, I got more and more worried. I mean, what if you'd been holding wild parties? What if he trashed the house? What if I came back to an empty shell? By the time New Year came and I was driving back up the motorway towards my house, my heart was in my mouth wondering what I'd find. What I found was this big bear of a man grinning on the doorstep. Dave had hoovered, washed the kitchen floor and had a chicken dinner waiting for me in the oven. As we sat and ate together, Dave told me his story and my mouth dropped further and further open. It seems like he'd spent his adult life as a pretty much full-time burglar. The reason he was homeless was because he'd just finished his latest spell in prison for housebreaking. As he finished telling his story, he was beginning to fill up. You see, he said, I've never had the front door keys to a house before. No one's ever trusted me like that. So I made up my mind that I was going to look after your house like it was my own. I owed it to you because you trusted me. There was nothing heroic about me trusting Dave with the house. It came out of ignorance and naivety. But trust begets trust, just as suspicion begets suspicion. That's true of human relationships between friends, between neighbours, and even perhaps especially between nations. For that cycle of trust to begin, one party has to take a risk to trust someone knowing that it might just end in disaster. By the way, he said, as we finished our late Christmas dinner, I couldn't afford to get you a present, so I thought I'd give you the benefit of my professional services instead. Oh, you don't mean you'd nick something for me, Dave. No, he said, I'm trying to put that all behind me but I've given your house a thorough check over from a burglar's point of view, a sort of personal security consultation. And I'd say you've got nothing to worry about. And with that advice from a top pro, I slept easy in my house from then on. When our children started at high school, we moved house again. We wanted a place where they could have their own rooms. So we ended up with four bedrooms. The house was bigger than we strictly needed, but we were hoping to adopt, so it made sense to have some growing room. That was then. Fifteen years later, our youngest moved out, and Jane and I were left rattling around a house that was too big for us, which we could barely afford. My job was coming to an end too, and we didn't know what the future would hold. We decided 
it would make sense to downsize. We wanted to stay local, so we put our house on the market and started looking for something smaller nearby. If you've ever tried to sell your house, you know it has a potent effect. We cleaned constantly, even cleaning places we hadn't touched for years. We painted walls and did everything we could to freshen the old place up and make it look attractive. Crucially, we started chucking things out. I made a painful decision to reduce my book collection by a third. We went through cupboards and sent old clothes to the charity shop. And as the for sale board went up at the end of the drive, we started saying our goodbyes to lovely neighbours and friends. After a bit of toing and froing, we accepted an offer on our house and did a deal on a similar house a mile or two away. A moving date was set and we booked a removal van. All our books went into crates which were stacked in the hallway by the front door. All our pictures came down off the walls leaving telltale shadow marks behind them. We started to pack the clothes that we wouldn't be using for a few months. Then, just 48 hours before the removal van was due to roll up the drive, an email from our buyers pinged into my inbox. They were really sorry, but they were pulling out of the move. The deal was off. I had to read the email about six times before it really sank in. We were going nowhere. The first and worst thing I had to do that day was to visit the house we were hoping to move into and tell the poor shocked family that our move was cancelled and so theirs was too. Then I had to unpick all our arrangements with the solicitors and their removal firm. Then I had to go around and tell all the neighbours that they were stuck with us for a bit longer. A lot longer, as it turned out. The mortgage broker made it clear that now I had no fixed income, they weren't interested in offering us a loan on a new house, even a smaller one. We were stuck. While Jane and I sat on the packing cases in the hall, wondering what on earth was going on, a man came to take down the for sale sign from the front gate. Later that morning, the phone rang. It was an old friend from work. She and her husband had found themselves with nowhere to stay and wondered if we had a room they could borrow for a while. As it happens, we did. They arrived next day to find us rehanging pictures and putting books back on shelves. Within the next few days, we had a call from a local organisation working with asylum seekers. Marion had arrived in the UK from Burundi. She was a children's worker but was fleeing for her life, having been threatened by her government. She had nowhere to go. Could she stay with us? She did. Marion was followed by Lai from China, Rosanna from Zimbabwe, Sophia from Somalia, Yasmin from Iran and Meru from Tibet. Some have stayed for a few weeks, others for many months. They've become our friends. They've been joined by students coming to the UK to learn English, Maria from Peru, Hisako from Japan, Miho from Korea, and a score of others. Visit our house for dinner, and, and I'm not just saying that, please do visit our house for dinner, and you'll find a veritable United Nations gathered round the table, swapping stories and making friendships across the divides of language and culture. Of course, there are downsides to having a full international house. Sometimes there's a queue for the shower. Sometimes the cutlery gets put in the wrong drawers and you can't find the potato peeler. But there are so many upsides. Fantastic smells of international cuisine waft through the house at all hours. We hear stories and see pictures from places we never knew existed. And we now have a network of friends in every continent. Gifts come in many forms. Money, yes but also time, trust, door keys, and even spare rooms. Thank you. <laughs> Thank beautiful. you so much. And so that is the house I experienced and the, um, the United Nations. You did, Nations. you joined yeah. us. It was lovely. Really special. And uh, one of the refugees that I spent some time with was, um, yeah, really, really beautiful. Now, who was that? Do you remember? Would that be Salma? I wonder, she, um, she was wearing a, 
Well, she probably wears different yeah. colours, but she was wearing a dark young blue. Woman from Somalia. Yes. Uh, she since you visited us, uh, well, she may have been visiting that day, but she's now got two children of her own and lives wow. nearby. And so we've got grandchildren who are Somalian, as well as a, a granddaughter who's Burundian and a grandson yeah. who's Palestinian. It's so cool. So These are all people who shared our house for a few years at a time. Yeah, and I think I met someone from Syria. And yeah. a few weeks later in Germany, I met a Syrian refugee on the train who still keeps in touch and, yeah. um, and some other Syrian refugees in at the Brandenburg Gate. And it was a really profound experience for me. But that's another day, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> those stories. Lockdown. Um, lockdown was really strange for us from that point of view because yeah. uh, when the lockdown came or was starting to come around the world, we had a house full of people from different countries, from yeah. Japan and Chile and um, uh, um, Eritrea. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we had to kind of work out between us, uh, were they going to get home mm. or were they going to join the family and stay? Yeah. And in fact, everybody got home except one a uh, young man called Yo-Yo, who is from Eritrea, who's now part of our family, accidentally. Um, so that's a joy. That's a privilege. Wow. That is beautiful. Um, now, we have another question here from Patricia, which may be answered in the next story that you're going to read. And I'm just mindful of time. So maybe we'll move. I'll just read that out to you then we'll go to your story. So if people have to leave, they can. Um, but we do have an encore story up our sleeve. <laughs> because, um, and Lyndon, maybe you can put the, um, the link in here for Amazon. Uh, so if you're an Amazon, you know, Kindle buyer or something, please uh, go grab it. There's heaps more stories that are just as thoughtful, entertaining, and uh, <coughs> yeah, really, really lovely. Yeah. But also, if you can go to your Kerry. local. Yeah. Sorry. If um, this is partly in response to Karen, um, I'm really happy to meet with other groups like this in this yeah. way. So if you are part of a group somewhere around the world and you'd like to have an hour or so of just story time together, just let Kerry know and she'll put us in touch and, yeah. uh, and we could set that up. It's really easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Anu's got to go. Thank you for joining us, lovely. Um, Anu sent me her beautiful book today. It arrived from Singapore. <laughs> Just beautiful. What an amazing community we have here. Um, so, Patricia's question was um, following up from the previous story. Have you always been like that or a life-changing experience made you see life in a different way? Would you like yeah, to Yeah, I had a life-changing experience. I had a life-changing experience 58 years ago when I was born. And uh, ever since then, um, I've been uh, making discoveries. That's cool. That's cool. Okay, so if you were to read that story, and uh, Dorothy, I'll come find you soon. Um, but I just wanted to say in terms of the book, so Lyndon's putting some Amazon links up there. But if you have a local bookstore, I'd encourage you to ask them to get it in. I asked um, the store in Dubbo and they got multiple copies. And then I messaged Ian and he contacted people so they might sell them out already. Um, but yeah, we love to support the local bookstores, but it is there internationally as well. So, Andrew, over to you for your beautiful Ooh, just, chapter 20. As a bit of a summary, uh, really, uh, in between the stories in the, in the books, there are um, a few kind of little reflections that are not so much stories but explanations and this is the one at the end of the book and I call it faith hope and mischief laughter is infectious however bad the joke if someone is really creased up it's almost impossible not to laugh with them it's a big mistake to try to do religion politics activism or sex without laughter Take Julian of Norwich, the 14th century mystic, who was, as far as we know, the first woman to write a book in English. Julian was an anchoress, meaning that she spent her life alone, voluntarily walled up in a cell. Here, when she was extremely sick and expecting to die, she had a vision of the love of God. Hardly sounds like common, comedy gold, does it? But in her vision, she says, I laughed mightily. And that made all those who were with me laugh also. And their laughing made me happy. 
I wanted all of my fellow Christians to see what I had seen so that they could all laugh with me. What seems to have set Julian of Norwich off here is a radical vision that in the end, good has and will overcome evil. It's a theme repeated in her writing and it goes well beyond mere hope. This isn't the hollow cackle of an empty universe, but the joyous belly laugh of someone who's just worked out how the world's joke ends. I want to laugh and I want to change the world. There are a number of reasons for this. The main reason is that I've lived long enough and traveled widely enough to know that the world is grotty. More than that, the world is seriously messed up, trashed, unfair, and full of sadness and disappointment. Every one of us has to find a way of dealing with that fact. There are essentially only two options. One way is to insulate yourself from as much of the horror as we can. That's not easy to do in a highly connected age where news reaches us from every corner of the world faster than Usain Bolt can run. We tend to be aware of tragedies within minutes, even if they've happened on the other side of the world. What's more, all the tragedies get mixed up. A devastating hurricane can sweep across a vast swathe of Asia, killing tens of thousands and leaving communities devastated. The 10 o'clock news may cover it for three or four minutes, provided there are pictures to illustrate the item. Then the next item on the bulletin may be the anguish of a child's death from neglect or disease much closer to home. The stories are on a wholly different scale. Every death is equally tragic, but edited together, they make a brown mess of heartbreaking calamity that seeps into my soul and makes the world seem cruel. And even as I watch the news bulletin, I know there's not a single thing I can do, either for the grieving parents of the child or for the thousands affected by the hurricane. So for the sake of my soul, to enable me to get through the day at all, I insulate myself against it. I don't do that by avoiding the news altogether. That seems to me to be a form of betrayal. But I have to do something to cope. I simply don't have enough emotional battery life to feel all the things that would be appropriate to feel in response to all those disasters, especially as I haven't yet processed the disasters I heard about yesterday and the day before. So instead of closing my eyes and turning away, I learned to dial down my emotional response. Now, after 20 years of learning about the devastating awfulness of so much that happens around the world, I'm able to hear about agonising grief, unbearable disasters and insufferable injustice and still go on to watch a comedy programme or make spaghetti or pet the dog as if not much has happened. I'm not saying this with any sense of pride. In fact, I'm saying it with shame. But in practice, this is how I make the world's tragedy tolerable by allowing it into my soul in only a homeopathic dilution. What else am I to do? Still, I want to change the world. Is that so much to ask? The second reason I want to change the world is that I want it to be better for my children and for their children and their children and so on. I'm not selfish enough to want it better only for my children, but I don't like to imagine that with all the knowledge that we have of human psychology and all the technology we have available to us, the world that they inhabit in, say, 50 years' time, will be just as grotty as the one we have today. I want to think that the world is on a path of improvement. Unfortunately, the realist in me knows that this isn't the way things go. I distinctly remember my physics teacher telling me at school that by the time I was 30, all human beings would be issued with jetpacks so that we could transport ourselves from place to place. Well, Mr. Hall, not only were you wrong about the jetpacks, but have you seen the traffic on the M60? Also, when I was 20, I genuinely thought that within my lifetime, the appalling patriarchal bias that my generation inherited would be done and dusted, and there would be equality between the sexes. How wrong was I? 50 years on, it feels as if that dial hasn't shifted much at all. So I'm not optimistic about the short-term future. My desire to make the world better for my children and grandchildren is simply based on the fact that I feel like my generation hasn't been that impressive 
in tackling the challenges we were set. And the very least I want to do is to make sure the next generation has a better shot. The third reason why I want to change the world is entirely selfish. I want to be significant. I don't want to feel like I've passed through the world without making a mark. Something inside me says that this whole thing will be worthwhile if I can make some definite improvement. I'm not looking for much, a cure for cancer perhaps, or an end to world hunger. I'm not picky, but I do want to tip the world's seesaw in the direction of good, even if it's just by a couple of degrees. To be frank, that part of me mostly wants to make the world better so that I can feel better about myself. I'm being really honest with you here. I want to do something great to validate myself. The more I burden myself with the idea that I should change the world, the more I find myself pitched against the world's built-in powers. For a start, changing the world starts to look like a race against time. When I was 20, it all looked perfectly feasible. I had ages to make a difference. Now I'm almost 60 and confidently past half-time, I feel like the clock is against me. I don't want to wholly abandon the idea of changing the world, but nor do I want to succumb to a feeling of hopelessness as the window of opportunity slowly closes. It's not only time that's against me either. If my settled purpose is to change the world, I'm really going to need to achieve quite a lot of raw power. I'm well aware that to change the world, you either need to have a vast brain so that people will bow to your superior intellect, or you need to have political influence that can get things done on a national or preferably a global level, or you need to have enough money to buy the change you want to see. Stephen Hawking had a huge brain. Greta Thunberg has massive political influence. Bill Gates has almost limitless supplies of cash. I haven't got any of those. I haven't really got enough time left to get them. But I still want to change the world. Recently, a friend of mine who is a prominent campaigner told me that if I want to make a difference, I need to build my personal brand. What he meant was that I need to leverage whatever power or personality I have through social media, through writing, through friendships and contacts to make sure that I'm projecting myself into the world in a way that I choose and a way that people will take notice of. I see lots of people who are prominent in public life who do just that. They take care about the ways they present themselves and by doing so they build a platform from which they hope to do great things. But what if the best way to change the world is not through collecting power but through rejecting it? And this runs counter to almost everything I was taught at school and also to all the hidden assumptions that I've picked up along the way. What if the best way for an everyday activist to exercise power is simply to get out of the way. A few weeks ago, a female friend told me something that blew my socks off. She simply described to me her experience of walking down a busy street. She told me that all the time she walks through a crowd, she's pausing and dodging and moving out of the way to avoid bumping into people. She said that this is an experience shared by lots of other women. Men simply expect to be able to walk in a straight line. My friend that she had said that she had tried as an experiment to walk down a street the way that men do, looking confident and not moving aside for anyone. She found that she was bumping into people all the time because they expected a woman to get out of the way for them. At first I was dubious. I'm 58 now and I've been walking on busy streets since I was about 18 months old. I don't think I'm a pavement bully and I couldn't believe that I've missed something so obvious. So for a few weeks I tried to observe how men and women negotiate busy places and I discovered that my friend is right. On average men seem to walk in straight lines whilst women dodge and weave. 
I've since noticed the same thing in children's playgrounds and in supermarkets too. Now, one of my most profound values is that women and men are created as equals. That's a challenge in a world where men still have all sorts of advantages just because we're men. In our society, men disproportionately occupy senior jobs, which means that we have proportionally higher pay than women. And that's just the start of it. Imbalance runs through society from the office block to the pavement and from the houses of parliament to the playground. Putting radical equality into practice in an unequal world will be uncomfortable. In my experience, it's hard enough to deal with inequalities that stare us in the face. It's much harder to tackle the privileges we aren't even aware of, like having priority on the pavement. I'm encouraged when I see young, gifted women supporting and encouraging each other to take on public roles. If we're going to make progress towards the goal of valuing both genders equally, women will need to find courage to step into roles that may be unfamiliar. They'll need to deal with the imposter syndrome that says that they're occupying a space where they really don't belong. But if women need to do some unfamiliar things to challenge the way the world thinks, so do men. When I was in my 20s, I really thought we'd have the problem of gender inequality sorted in my lifetime. Now, I'm less hopeful. The most significant thing men like me can do is quite simple, but also very challenging. Get out of the way. It's the exact opposite of building your personal brand. It might mean men turning down invitations to lead and recommending women who could do the job just as well. It might even mean saying no to a promotion at work if the other candidate is female. Or it might be something as simple but radical as walking down the pavement more thoughtfully to make space for women to walk in straight lines. The three things that characterise an everyday activist are faith, hope and mischief. By faith, I mean deciding to believe that there is a big picture that governs history. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Faith and doubt play for the same team. The opposite of faith is cynicism, which is to be avoided at all costs. By hope, I mean that choosing to believe that despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, the world's story is going to end well. The opposite of hope is not pessimism. Pessimism may well be the most realistic stance in any given situation. The opposite of hope is giving up. I'm not giving up. By mischief, I mean that instead of being immobilised by my insignificance or impotence, I look for creative, joyful, cheeky, unorthodox ways to shift the status quo. I'm an everyday activist and this is my creed. I believe in the power of tiny acts to change the world. I believe in taking risks, making trouble and doing small things that make a big difference. I believe in walking under ladders, treading on the cracks in the pavements and singing into the wind. I believe in bursting bubbles and poking fun at the overmighty, especially if the overmighty is myself. I'm not all powerful so that I can solve the world's problems or even my own problems, but I'm not completely powerless either. There are things that I can do. I can't take responsibility for everything, not in my work, not in my community and not in my family. But that doesn't mean that I have to wash my hands of everything either, as if it doesn't matter what I do. I'm imperfect, but I'm not useless. I'm an everyday activist. I'm not everything that I could be, but I'm not nothing either. Somewhere in between those two false ideals is the place where I live. Thank you very much. That is beautiful. Uh, if, if you don't like to come off mute and clap, um, <laughs> giving a shout. That's that's beautiful, Andrew. As you read that, uh, and I've already read that 
that story, but I just realized that your creed needs to go into my next book. So um, <laughs> you'll be getting a shout out in, uh, in the next one. And I think on social media too. Uh, that is absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. And, uh, Are there things that you would like to say or comment or questions that you would like to ask? Speaking of making, uh, you know, just small things making a difference. Uh, some of you might have seen yesterday when I was doing a Facebook Live, I think when I just read a, a little section of a story, uh, Lyndon turned to me and said, can we give um, access to safe drinking water for families in Cambodia for every person who turns up tonight? So... I think we had 18 or 19 people live and a few more people registered, probably about twice that registered who will be getting the recording. So because of your reading tonight, Andrew, we're giving um, to the, the global goal number uh, six, clean water and sanitation, because we're passionate about everybody being able to get safe drinking water. <laughs> it's like That's foundational beautiful. to being able to go and get an education and, you know, health etc so thank you all for being here so who has a question for andrew if you need to go totally okay oh actually simon said have you read yes man by danny wallace if not i think you'll love it andrew and yeah no i haven't but i'm aware of that and i'll uh, i should get my hands on it and it was made into a movie as well with jim carrey which is i think a bit different from the book but uh i should have a look at that right yes that's wonderful. Thank you. Any questions or comments? Would anyone else like to share any insights? Can I say something, Kerry, please? Yes, Karen. Karen hello. Hi, just up the road, MC. just up the motorway, I Karen. Yeah, just up the M6. <laughs> do you know it? Uh, yeah. yeah, no, we don't actually. We oh, do okay. now. Okay, cool. <laughs> we do now. Yeah, I just so enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect. And I'm ashamed to say I was not aware of that photograph. Oh, <laughs> I, can't wow. I missed it. <laughs> you and many millions uh, of others. Yeah, but oh, that is an incredible story. The whole book, I really want a copy of the book. Yeah. Karen, so, let's yeah. be in touch because maybe there's a group yeah. in Blackpool who would like to have some story time. Yeah, well, I go to a church in Lancaster, but obviously we're not up to meeting yet. Everybody's still- no, We can meet like this. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll have a word with my pastor because it'd be really good to tell some of them stories. It really would. Lovely. But yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, glad you could join us, Karen. Karen and I connected yeah. because of either Facebook Live or Periscope, some social media. Periscope, I think it was. Yeah, back in the day before Facebook yeah. was doing live. Yeah. Video. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that's great. It's just, uh, you know, such a gift to be able to connect right across the planet and uh, i think people are more aware of that now and also more aware of how we are so you know intertwined right across the world our lives are so connected mm. so yeah beautiful and minakshi says great listening to you andrew thank you minakshi minakshi has been helping me get the word out on social media we connected through her college in coimbatore Kerry, I just want to thank you for connecting, firstly, with myself and also inviting me. Andrew, I really enjoyed your readings uh, today. Um, and it really is a, um, the, the whole world is so interconnected. I remember um, a couple of years ago, we went over to Christchurch and I hadn't been over to New Zealand for, I don't know, years and years and years. So we took a team across to have a look at some of the schools in Christchurch. And uh, that was on the Sunday. And uh, unfortunately, the shooting was on the Friday. So when we went there, um, Christchurch was in shock. And for us to have a bunch of Aussies to go across to Christchurch at that time, and it was so, um, there was so much pain. Uh, there was just so much healing that we actually brought just by being there as Australians, uh, being able to cry uh, with, the, uh, with, with the New Zealanders at that time. And uh, it really is amazing how closely we are intertwined, even when we don't plan things. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, fine. And uh, Orlando, I actually messaged uh, Shamsa Lee, one of our mutual friends on LinkedIn and said, how do you know Orlando? And she said, he was my teacher. <laughs> and now she's a, a leader in the Air Force. Uh, just yeah, I know. 
amazing lady. She couldn't join us live, but she's going to get the yeah. replay. That's all right, teacher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew, I'll have to go, but honestly, I'll, I'll, we'll just stay in touch. But honestly, I've enjoyed it so much. And Kerry, thank you so much for organising this. Yeah, most welcome. Thank you, Orlando. It's a privilege to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks, yes. Andrew. You'll see Andrew's tagged in my LinkedIn post, so you'll be able to connect. Yeah. With and I yeah. noticed that Simon already had. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Orlando. Um, if you like, I could read just a very, very short story as a, like um, uh, just a, a way of saying goodbye. It's a very encore, short encore. story. And then after that, we'll say goodbye. <laughs> Lovely. Okay? Thanks, Andrew. This is a story. Maybe a photo, Gary. Oh, wow. Why didn't I get a photo earlier? Okay. <laughs> All right. Everybody very smiling. Short story. Are you ready? Smile for the camera. Beautiful. Thanks, Andrew. I don't know if I got it. Okay, and before I do this, because we're saying goodbye, I'll say thank you to Kerry for organising this for us. And uh, if you'd like to get hold of the book, it's called Faith, Hope and Mischief. And if you'd like to have a group reading like this online, we can do that anywhere around the world now. So just get in touch. This is a very short story called A Bird in the Hand. The other day, a tiny bird threw in th flew in through our bedroom window. I got the shock of my life and so did the bird. I was just standing there when suddenly it arrived, perched on the window frame for a moment, then dropped like a stone and started flapping around on the bedroom floor. I don't know which of us was more surprised. The poor little thing was panicking. It obviously hadn't got a clue what to do and to be honest, neither did I. So I did what I usually do in moments of crisis. I called my wife. She picked the bird up, softly cupping it in her hands and gently lifted it up to the open window. It was flapping like mad. Once her hands were outside the window, she opened them flat. The bird stopped flapping for a moment and just waited. It was almost as if it needed a moment to get its thoughts together. Then it launched off and flew away. Later on, I wondered what the bird had made of the experience. What did it tell its parents when it got back to the nest? All right, I might be getting a bit Walt Disney here. David Attenborough would probably tell me that birds aren't as philosophical as all that. But I wondered whether it had any sense of having been rescued, held, delivered by something bigger than itself. There's something curious about that sense of being held in hands that are much bigger than your own, hands that could crush you but instead choose to support you. Some people call that faith. I don't know whether birds have the capacity to feel grateful. Probably not, but I know that humans do and I am. I hope that little bird goes through life with a nagging sense that there is something bigger, much bigger than itself, and that once upon a time that's something that could easily have harmed it, actually helped it instead. And that's all from me. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, this lunchtime, wherever you are. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. And I'll say goodbye. Thank you, Andrew. That's beautiful. And uh, Rajiv said, thank you for this insightful session. I thoroughly enjoyed the session. Great, inspiring storytelling. Tiny acts of rebellion. I will buy this book. <laughs> Rajiv is a great reader. I know he'll like not just read the book, but make the most of it. <laughs>